Well, for this morning, if you would please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Exodus in a very familiar passage, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, compassionate, merciful, gracious, good, Remind us this morning that we are debtors to mercy alone. That we are slaves, bondservants of the grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we devote this hour to you, to learn about you, to learn about how you are merciful and how you are gracious. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Newton was born in 1725 to an irreligious seafaring father. His mother died when he was six, and he followed in the footsteps of his father. He became a sailor and then a captain. He also said that he had a sailor's mouth as he cursed left and right, and he blasphemed God. And he lived the debauched life of a sailor. In fact, John Newton was so wicked that he traded slaves. He literally went to Africa and used his ship to engage in the African slave trade. But then, one day during a deadly storm at sea, Newton cried out to God. He read Luke 11 and believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. Newton left the slave trade. He left his cursing, debauched lifestyle, and he went on to become a pastor for 43 years. He went on to write many hymns. You may have heard of one of the hymns he wrote. It is the most famous hymn in the English language. See if you recognize these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The amazing grace of God changed John Newton's life. God turned this blaspheming, slave-trading, wicked sailor into a beloved pastor, beloved husband, and beloved hymn writer through the power of the gospel. And we, nearly 300 years later, are still benefiting from it. In previous weeks, we looked at the intellectual attributes of God. 
and the sovereign attributes of God, or the attributes of purpose and sovereignty. And last week, we began looking at the moral attributes of God, these attributes of God which reflect his moral character, the attributes of God which represent his ethical nature. And we started by looking at God's goodness and God's patience. Today, we will continue in our study of the moral attributes of God by looking at God's mercy and God's grace. And I have to say that this week, I was challenged because I thought to myself, how do I take these two topics, mercy and grace, which are so familiar to us, and how do I make them challenging, refreshing, and encouraging? And then I realized, shame on me. Shame on me. Because the topics of God's mercy and grace in and of themselves should be challenging, refreshing, and encouraging. Shame on us if we ever grow tired or weary of God's grace and God's mercy. We are debtors to mercy alone. So what I'd like to do first is do a quick overview of these moral attributes in relation to each other, these attributes as a group. And I'd like to see two overarching general observations about how these moral attributes relate to one another. The first general observation is God's mercy and grace flow out of God's goodness. Now, most theologians view these attributes of God as subsets or representations of God's attribute of goodness. They flow out of God's attribute of goodness. Now, last week, Pastor Isaiah brought up that the attribute of God, of God's goodness, is that attribute which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all of his creatures. And most theologians view God's mercy, God's grace, and God's love as emanations of this attribute of goodness, as stemming from God's goodness. These are different forms and ways that God deals bountifully and kindly with all of his creation. Now, specifically, on the thought of salvation, as we think about the redemption which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone, we realize that the biblical language has a progression in these attributes. There is a flow, a logical movement, an advancement. It goes from goodness to love to grace to mercy. So again, we start with goodness. God's goodness is God's generosity, God's kindness, which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all of his creatures. This is the overarching attribute, the overarching theme of all of these attributes. And out of God's goodness flows God's love. The goodness of God as it is focused on his people. God's love is his goodness towards his people in particular. It is demonstrated in his election of them, and it is expressed in his accomplishment of salvation for them. But how does God accomplish this salvation? By grace. By grace. 
by giving grace to his people, by giving grace to his elect loved ones. In eternity past, God set his love upon you, and he saved you by his grace. Burkhoff defines the grace of God as the unmerited goodness or love of God. And now notice we are defining God's grace in terms of goodness and love. The unmerited goodness or love of God to those who have forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. God's grace is God's goodness and love specifically towards those who are deserving of condemnation, specifically towards those people who are deserving of judgment. Now, if you want a simple definition, and I'm sure you've heard this before, perhaps you heard it growing up in church, perhaps you've heard it in other contexts, if you want a simple definition of grace, we often define grace as getting something good that we don't deserve. Has everybody heard of this simple definition of grace? Now, that is true, but I would argue that it is not entirely true. Biblically speaking, grace is more than that. Grace is more than just unmerited favor. I like how the Baker Compact Dictionary of Theological Terms puts it. Grace is God's demerited favor. Demerited favor. It's not that we don't deserve it. It's that we deserve the opposite. It's not that, that we're just undeserving of this. It's that we deserve the opposite. We deserve wrath. We are not neutral. We are under condemnation. We are under judgment. We deserve judgment. So grace comes to us in light of God's judgment. Grace comes to us in light of our sin. Properly speaking, we do not speak of grace where there is no sin. Where there is no sin, there is no need for grace. So the point is, we are under God's judgment when we receive grace. Finally, we come to mercy. Burkhoff defines mercy as the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery and distress. Now, God's mercy is specifically towards those who are suffering towards those who are in misery, towards those who are in distress. But brothers and sisters, we must not forget that when it comes to salvation, sinners can be in misery because they are under God's judgment. Sinners can be in distress because they are under God's judgment. Sinners can be suffering because they are under God's judgment. Remember Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He gives mercy to those who are miserable under judgment. God gives mercy to those who are suffering under his judgment. And so we see the logical flow of thought. God's goodness is God's generosity and benevolence to all of his creation. That's the overarching theme. God's love is God's goodness specifically for his elect covenant people. And God makes us his covenant people 
through grace. Grace is given to us because we deserve judgment. And then God's mercy is given to us as those who are suffering under his judgment, as those who are in distress because we are under his judgment. There is a progression from goodness to love to grace to mercy. So that is the first overarching observation. The second observation is that both God's grace and God's mercy can be spoken of in terms of general and specific categories, general and specific classifications. General grace and general mercy are shown to everyone, indiscriminately, indistinctly, every single person, elect or non-elect, Christian or not, because they are general. They are given to absolutely everybody. They're comprehensive, they're universal. However, in scripture, grace and mercy are often used specifically or specially with reference to the people of God, to the chosen of God, to the church of God. Now, in the time remaining, I'd like to just walk our way through this chart and look at each of these categories in and of themselves. First, let's look at mercy in general. Mercy in general. We can also call the mercy of God, the compassion of God. So when you read in your Bible, compassion, you should think mercy. And when you read in your Bible, mercy, you should think compassion. They are interchangeable. In scripture, mercy or compassion is often accentuated and emphasized with people who are in distress, who are in misery. For instance, 2 Samuel 24, 14, David says, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. The blind men who wish to see Jesus in Matthew 9, 27, cry out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Paul speaks of God as the father of mercies and God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Mercy is given to those who are in great need, to those who are suffering those who are miserable. As we saw earlier, there are two divisions within God's mercy. So let's move on now to general mercy. General mercy. General mercy is given to all of God's creation, which is indeed fallen and miserable and in distress. And God exercises compassion and mercy in his creation and in his providence. God has mercy over his creation. Psalm 145, verse 9. His tender mercies are over all his works. God has mercy in his providence. Matthew 5, 45. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God gives mercy to all men. All people everywhere who are in misery and in distress, who are suffering, God is merciful towards them. God is compassionate towards them. Our God is a compassionate God. But even more, there is sovereign mercy. And I also have to say, I didn't make up these terms, and I have no idea why it couldn't just be common mercy and special mercy, just like common grace and special grace. I have a feeling it's because theologians like to make up terms, but that's just my guess. 
These are the commonly used terms, though. So general mercy and sovereign mercy. So let's talk about sovereign mercy. This is the mercy of God, which is given specifically towards God's fallen, miserable, elect Christians. God's fallen, miserable, elect people who are saved through the redemption of Jesus Christ. It's given to us. It's given to his church. It's given to those who believe in him. Romans 9.23 says, He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. O believer, O Christian, O those of you who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation this morning, do not ever forget that you are a vessel of mercy. You are a vessel of mercy, not a vessel of wrath. You have been shown compassion in your miserable, desperate, lost spiritual state. Let that sink in. You are a vessel of mercy. Now to unpack this concept of mercy, I'd like to look at some of the words used in the Bible which describe God's mercy. In the New Testament, the Greek word for mercy is eleos, and it speaks of being stirred when one sees someone who is unfairly or unjustly afflicted. In the Old Testament, there are many Hebrew words used, but I'd like to just look at two of them. The first Hebrew word is the most common Hebrew word for mercy, and that is the word raham. Raham refers to having a sympathetic view of another's distress, motivating a helpful action. It reflects pity on one who is in need. Now, interestingly enough, raham in scripture is pictured as a person. It is personified. Raham is the mercy of God personified. And here I find theologian Nichols very helpful. And I've relied upon him for our discussion of Raham. Mercy is related to the eye. It's what compassion sees. Mercy is related to the heart. It's what compassion feels. Mercy is related to the mouth, what compassion says. And mercy is related to the hand. It's what compassion does. So let's look at the eye of mercy. Mercy sees. Mercy notices distress. Mercy notices need. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four: 24, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. God notices the afflicted. God notices need. God turns his eye towards those who are in distress. The psalmist says, nor has he hidden his face from him. The merciless eye is the opposite. The merciless eye turns its face away from those who are in need. The merciless eye lacks compassion and so turns away from those who are in distress. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan. The poor man was beaten and left for dead. And there were three who walked by this man. And they lacked mercy. They lacked compassion. 
So what did they do? They walked on the other side of the road. The merciless eye turns away from misery. The merciless eye abhors the affliction of the afflicted. Then we have the heart of mercy. The heart of mercy is a sympathetic heart. God identifies with the suffering of those who suffer. Isaiah 63 verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He bare them and he carried them all the days of old. Listen to that, brethren. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. The heart of mercy feels. The heart of mercy empathizes. The heart of mercy sympathizes. God sympathized with them. The mercy of God speaks of God's heart of compassion. He identifies with the suffering of those who suffer. Then we have the mouth of mercy. Mercy speaks. Isaiah 49, 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy, Raham, upon his afflicted. So mercy sees, mercy feels, and then mercy speaks. Mercy speaks a word of encouragement, speaks a word of consolation. Mercy speaks a word of comfort. Finally, the hand of mercy. Mercy relieves suffering. Mercy seeks to relieve distress. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Mercy does not just speak a word of help, it lifts a hand to help. Mercy is more than just talking the talk, mercy is walking the walk. Mercy relieves suffering. Mercy is moved to action. So Raham is pictured as a person who is relieving distress. There's another word used in scripture when it comes to sovereign mercy, and it's one of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 1 Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Now, the word mercy in these passages is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. It's not just hesed. You have to be more guttural about it. Chesed. Chesed is one of the most important, most precious words in all of the Hebrew Bible. And it testifies to the fact that God is indeed a merciful God because it appears in 245 verses of the Old Testament alone. That's a lot of verses. Some verses have variously translated this phrase as loving kindness. That's what you'll often see in the New American Standard. Mercy, compassion, steadfast love, loyal love, covenant love. Now, that's a lot of translations. 
And it points to the fact that we in English do not have a single English word which can translate this Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is an all-encompassing word. The root of this word is the concept of covenant love. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Now in the phrase covenant of love, the word love is chesed. It's the word for compassion, the word for mercy, the word for loving kindness. So what Moses is saying is that God has a covenant of love for his people that emphasizes faithfulness, truth, compassion, goodness, and kindness. And all of that is rolled up into this Hebrew word chesed. Oh, Christian, just think about this. God has covenanted with you. God has promised you that he will love you, that he will keep you, that he will protect you, that he will be merciful to you, that he will be compassionate to you. You are an object of God's covenant love. That's the expression of covenant love. So that's the mercy of God. Just one brief application on the doctrine of mercy. Now, by far, in the Old Testament, the predominant picture, the predominant image of mercy that is given is the image of a parent's compassion for their children. In particular, it is the image of a mother's compassion for her children. In fact, the Hebrew word for womb, W-O-M-B, womb, is actually related to the Hebrew word raham, mercy. They're pretty much the same root. They're pretty much the same word. It speaks of the power of a mother's compassion for her children. So one very easy application from this is that if the, the predominant image in the Bible of mercy is a parent's mercy and compassion on their children, one application is parents have compassion on your children. Remember to have compassion on your children. Psalm 103, 13 to 14 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Now look at the relationship there. Look at the relationship between God knowing our frame and God having compassion on us. God knows our weaknesses. God knows our frailties. God knows our faults. God knows our inabilities. And so therefore, God has compassion on us. Parents, we need to know the frame of our children. We need to know their weaknesses, their frailties, their inabilities. And so therefore, we ought to have compassion on them. Now, I'm not saying, I am not saying, just ignore sin. Don't deal with sin. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we must distinguish between weakness 
and rebellion. We must distinguish between frailty and sin. As a personal example of this, I have young children, and so I often have to ask myself when my children are crying and just losing it and just screaming out, I often have to ask myself, so are they crying because they are throwing a tantrum as a result of selfishness? That would be sin. Or are they crying because their frame is just so worn out and I've pushed them beyond their limit and they're just so tired that they're breaking down? One is sin, the other is weakness. Now, clearly, sometimes there is just flat-out defiance and rebellion. And sometimes, I mean, that's, that's easy. But what is the line between weakness and sin for my children? What is the line between weakness and sin for your children? I do not know. I don't have the answer to that. It's a complicated line. It's a complicated question. All I know is that we would be wrong to treat weakness the same way as we treat rebellion. Where there is weakness, we should meet it with compassion. Where there is frailty, we ought to meet it with mercy. Just as the Lord knows our frame and treats us with compassion, we ought to know the frame of our children and we ought to meet it with compassion. I am not saying that this is easy, but I am saying that it is godlike. Let's move on to grace. God, in 1 Peter 5.10 says, God is called the God of all grace. And I mentioned this earlier, the Baker Compact Dictionary of Theological Terms says, as an attribute of God, his goodness expressed to those who deserve condemnation. Grace is God's demerited favor. Now we who by our very sinful natures and by our very sinful actions deserve judgment and condemnation, we have been shown grace. Now let's move on to talk about common grace, which is general grace. This was first formulated by Augustine, but it was not called common grace until Calvin called it common grace in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. God's common grace is the non-salvific, non-redemptive grace of God, which extends to every person, everywhere, to one degree or another. One of the greatest testimonies of God's goodness is the fact that every single person on the face of this earth, throughout all of history, throughout all of time, in all geographies, in all countries, has been shown common grace. Every single person. Common grace answers for us two very important questions. Number one, in light of God's justice, how can there be so much kindness and blessing extended to those who deserve justice? Number two, in light of total depravity, how can there be so much relative good that comes through depraved people? The answer is common grace. There are aspects to common grace, three of them. God restrains sin. God restrains sin. If God were to give everyone over 
to just the utter wickedness of our depravity, this world would be in total anarchy and ruin. And now you say to me, well, it seems like this world is already in total anarchy and ruin, but actually that's not true. We are totally depraved, but we are not utterly depraved. Totally depraved means that, yes, in everything that we do, it is tainted with sin, but utterly depraved means that we are as bad, as wicked, as evil as we could possibly, possibly be. We are totally depraved, but we are not utterly depraved. Why are we not utterly depraved? Because of common grace. Because of common grace. Just the fact that people can live in a society, that there are family units, that people can produce goods, that people can help one another, that is all common grace. There are so many examples of this in Scripture. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says, God restrains the secret power of lawlessness. In Job 1.12, God only allows Satan to afflict Job to God's own design. Romans 13, God institutes government, law enforcement, and civil code. All of these are testimonies of common grace. Secondly, God restrains his wrath. God restrains wrath. Now let me ask you a question. When is the first time we see grace in the Bible? No, not only that. When is the first time that we see grace in history? In the garden. In Genesis 3. Right after the fall. Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you will die. And in the Hebrew, it's actually emphatic. Do not eat of the tree, do not eat of the fruit of the tree, lest dying you will die. But did they die? No. Why? Because God was gracious. God delayed judgment. God restrained his wrath. God postponed judgment for them. Common grace is a delay of judgment. God could have poured out his wrath once and for all on Adam and Eve in that garden, and none of us would have existed. None of us. None of us would have been born. So in a sense, all of life is owed to common grace. All of your life, all of my life, Every single life that has ever been lived is owed to common grace, to God restraining and delaying judgment. Common grace is what allowed history to unfold. It's what allowed all of us to be born. It's what allowed the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be born. Common grace allows special grace to come to the sinner. God could have struck all of us dead in judgment and condemnation, and he would have been absolutely just for that. But he didn't. Instead, God was gracious. God was patient. God allowed you to hear the gospel. God delayed his judgment until you could hear the gospel and be saved. God gave you common grace enough time until you could hear special grace, until you could receive special grace. Therefore, common grace is what allows special grace to happen. 
It's what allowed the special grace of the salvation of Jesus Christ to come into this world. And it's often said that common grace is the platform for special grace. Common grace is the vehicle which allows special grace to come to you. Without common grace, there would be no circumstances to allow the gospel to unfold. Thirdly, God gives temporary blessings to all. Acts 14, 17 says, He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Pastor Isaiah mentioned this morning just the fact that we can have a home, that we can wake up and eat a good breakfast, that we can come to church, that we can live in this world, that we can have water to drink, that we can have air to breathe. All of this is common grace from God. Every single moment of our life, we live by grace. So here's a comparison. Common grace is temporary in nature. It's for this world only. Whereas special grace is eternal, meaning it has ramifications for eternity. Common grace is non-salvific. That is, it is non-redemptive. While it is the platform which allows special grace to come, strictly speaking, common grace does not refer to salvation. Special grace, on the other hand, is salvific. It refers specifically to salvation. Common grace is universal. It encompasses all people everywhere. It encompasses all relative acts of restraint and blessing. Whereas special grace is specific. It's only for the saved, the elect. And lastly, common grace is resistible. People often resist God's grace. They resist God's goodness. They resist God's blessings. They take the blessings of God, the common grace blessings of God, and they just throw it back in his face. Whereas special grace is irresistible. It draws the soul of the sinner by irresistible grace. So with that, let's look at special grace, and we'll look at this briefly. First, the grace of God is free and unmerited. It cannot be, it cannot be earned, it cannot be bought, it cannot be deserved. Romans 3, 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. Salvation is a gift. It's all of grace. G.S. Bishop says, Grace is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the acts of justice, so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God that they cannot turn to him, so blind that they cannot see him, so deaf that they cannot hear him, and so dead that he himself must open their graves and lift them into resurrection. Secondly, the grace of God is sovereign. Exodus 33, 19, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God bestows grace on whomever he pleases. It is given to the elect. Thirdly, the grace of God was decreed by the Father from eternity past. 2 Timothy 1, 9, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. God eternally possessed this attribute of grace. And from eternity past, 
God wanted, God sought to exercise this attribute of grace. And that is why the plan of salvation was hatched. That is why the decree of salvation was hatched, so that God could exercise, could show forth this attribute of grace. Fourthly, the grace of God is fully revealed in his incarnate son, Jesus Christ. John 1.17, the law was given by Moses, and grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is grace epitomized. Jesus Christ is grace in a human body. Fifthly, the grace of God is proclaimed in the gospel. Acts 20, 24, Paul says, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel shows us God's grace. Lastly, the grace of God is communicated through his spirit. Zechariah 12.10 calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of grace. The spirit of God regenerates the cold heart, the cold dead hearts of men so that we may believe in him. Pink says, the father is the fountain of grace. The son is the only channel of grace. The gospel is the publisher of grace. The Spirit is the bestower of grace. So that's God's grace. I'd like to close with just two brief applications. First, the grace of God is not an excuse for committing sin, but a motivation for, for fighting sin, for killing sin. Now, some people think, well, God is so gracious that I could just sin all I want. I can do whatever I want, and God will forgive me because he's so gracious. Well, people who say that do not understand the nature of God's grace. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We must understand that grace not only forgives the sinner, but transforms the sinner. We are not only forgiven of the penalty of sin, we are freed from the power of sin. God's grace is not a license to sin, it is a motivation to kill sin. Grace abounds not so that we may sin, grace abounds so that we may repent from sin. Have you ever been met with a situation where literally in your mind you think, well, I could just go ahead and commit it, I could just go ahead and commit this sin, and God will forgive me. Have you ever asked yourself that? I know I have been met with that situation many times. And in our flesh, we tend to think, yeah, well, that's true, because my theology tells me that God is gracious. Brothers and sisters, we must stop perverting grace. We must stop presuming upon the grace of God. Grace is not a license to sin, it is a motivation and a power to kill sin. On the other hand, remember that God is gracious. We must kill sin. We must put sin to death. 
but we must also avoid the other extreme, a guilt-laden existence of drudgery where we have forgotten the goodness and the tenderness and the peace of God, as we heard about this morning. Oh, believer, as you've been seeking to kill sin in your life, have you ever thought to yourself that, well, it's really holy of me to say, well, I'm so sinful, and God is so holy that he must despise me. He must despise me. And it's only right for him to do that because I'm just so wicked. Well, if you have, you've forgotten that God is gracious. God is gracious. God doesn't despise you. God loves you. God is gracious towards you. God is good to you. John Owen calls this soul deceit from Satan. Owen says, men are afraid to have good thoughts of God. Is it too hard to think of God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving? I speak of saints. They can judge him hard, austere, severe, almost implacable, and fierce. Is not this soul deceit from Satan? Was it not his design from the beginning to inject such thoughts of God? Assure yourself then, there is nothing more acceptable to the Father than for us to keep up our hearts to him as the eternal fountain of all that rich grace which flows out to sinners in the blood of Jesus. Brethren, do not be afraid to have good thoughts of God. Do not fall prey to soul deceit from Satan. Remember, God is good. God is merciful. God is gracious. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, Lord, we are debtors to grace and to mercy. Lord, we know that Jesus has paid it all. Lord, we know that because we are found in him, we can be recipients of divine, irresistible grace. Thank you, God, for the blessing of knowing grace, of knowing mercy. May it motivate us in our walk with you. May it give us power to kill sin. Help us, Lord, to trust the gospel to live and breathe grace, and to kill sin. We pray in Jesus' name.